You're listening to Nolympia Olympia on NetNet Net Radio. This program is hosted by Nolympics LA, a coalition of human rights groups fighting against the Los Angeles 2028 Olympic bid and the evils of the Olympic Games in solidarity with the global anti-Olympic movement. You can find us on social media at Nolympics LA and check us out at our website, nolympicsla.com, to learn more. Cancel the 2020 Olympic Games and abolish the IOC.
You're listening to Nolympia. Recently, Nolympic sat down for a candid interview with Jules Boykoff after his appearance on episode 30 of season 2 of the Monk Debates podcast, a program that brings together informed voices to engage in civil and substantive public debate. In that episode, Jules went pound for pound with Dick Bound, a current IOC spokesperson and a chairman on the board of Olympic Broadcasting Services about the upcoming 2022 Winter Games, which are scheduled to kick off in Beijing next February. It's a pretty fascinating episode, partly because Jules wiped the floor with Pound's arguments, and also because of the insight into how much the IOC survives by draping itself in its own myths, refusing to adapt or grow, and instead choosing to lean on the Olympics' legacy as a means of caping for their corporate partners and their own billion-dollar bank accounts. Jules also speaks on his recent slate of media appearances as the call to cancel Tokyo 2020 gets louder, and offer some insight into the IOC and their next steps after the summer's games. Enjoy. Why are we talking about Beijing and China when the debacle continues to unfold and Tokyo. I think it's just indicative of there's a double debacle happening in Olympics land and media are interested in both what's happening in Tokyo and what's happening in Beijing for fairly different reasons really too. Um, what's happening in Beijing was something that could have been foretold. I mean we people from the human rights community have been jumping up and down about it for a long time whereas it's a bit more of a surprise attack. I mean who could have predicted coronavirus and so I think having both of these things discussed at the same time actually creates a real moment to raise bigger questions about the Olympics, bigger questions about who benefits from the Olympics. And I think both of these games and all the troubles that have gone along with them has also placed a bigger spotlight on the International Olympic Committee and one that is long overdue this spotlight. I mean, people like me who've been trying to get to the root of the situation in an academic way can't help but look at the International Olympic Committee and try to figure out what role they play. But now we're watching mainstream news that talks about who really has the power to cancel the Olympics. It's only the IOC in Tokyo has the power. And people are like, wait, what? Then you can talk about the host city contract that is incredibly lopsided in favor of the International Olympic Committee every single time they write the host city contract. So it's just a fascinating moment right now where you have two tracks of of dissent against the Olympics that are sort of being mainstreamed at the same time. It's like a one-two punch that I just haven't seen in all my days. It is kind of a funny feeling. I'm not accustomed to having folks from like CNN, for example, look me up and want to talk about these issues in a very critical way. Like that's why they're having me on is to talk critically about the Olympics. And I mean, I've always believed that I was pursuing things like a social scientist would basing everything on evidence, strong evidence, trying to triangulate evidence. And I guess maybe finally it's starting to pay off a little bit in a more sort of mainstream way. Uh, I think the fact that, you know, well, I should also say, I mean, my goodness, like, it's not like I've been out here alone. I mean, there are many critical scholars of the Olympics. There are many human rights groups out there that have been fighting these fights. And of course, in every Olympic city, you see this upsurge in anti-Olympics activism. And you put that together with more critical journalism that we're seeing out there on the Olympics, and you have quite a recipe 
for really questioning the foundations of the Olympics at this moment when they absolutely need to be questioned. And so if I'm a small part of that, I'm happy to. Yeah, it feels good to you know, have a lot of people paying attention to an issue you care about. And um, yeah, I'm not going to lie about that. I definitely didn't expect this at this moment. If you would have asked me in 2019 uh, what was going to happen, I wouldn't have predicted this. But I think that's one thing that's actually an important lesson around the Olympics in the modern moment is that things are changing in just such whipsaw fashion that it becomes very difficult to predict what will happen next. Living in a world where climate change is ravaging us, where wildfires on the West Coast of the United States are just everywhere ubiquitous and dangerous. I mean, how are these things going to affect these type of events that happen, let alone just our normal life? We've all seen how it affects our normal life. So yeah, I mean, what a moment. This is an incredible moment for thinking critically about the Olympics. And I've quickly become accustomed to the reality. I'm fine with it, you know? Like, if people want to start thinking more critically in the mainstream media about it, absolutely, let's do it.
wrote an essay for the New York Times demanding cancellation of the Olympics. Turns out people definitely still read the New York Times. And I've long thought that the New York Times can drive a lot of other news coverage, and this has demonstrated that that's actually true. Um, also wrote an essay for the Washington Post. I think that didn't hurt as well. So yeah, my life has been kind of wild in, in a good way. Like I'm enjoying it, um, but yeah, I'm not accustomed to like sitting in front of a screen or going into a studio, getting picked up by a black Cadillac Escalade at 4 a.m. to go into a studio at CNN. That's not part of my daily life here, you know. But yeah, no, I mean, it's like I'm definitely not complaining because it's nice to be able to talk to a wider group of people in a critical way about the Olympics. And so having these opportunities is nothing to complain about. But yeah, and some of these days have been just like one thing after the other. And then the, the invitations, I'm fortunate enough to say, have been just continue to flow in. And, you know, unfortunately, I can't even do them all. I mean, my, my approach has always been, in, these, in this recent batch, my approach has been to try to go with the outlets that have the biggest viewership but also stay true and do the, the leftist outlets that either I listen to myself or that are kind of like up and coming scrappy leftist outfits. I'll still do my best to, to work with them. Um, if I have to say no to somebody, it would probably be more of like a, a mainstream radio audience or something like that. I get a lot of requests, which I appreciate from, from those folks, but I just can't do it all. Uh, sometimes I'll recommend other people that they could talk to, but I've never just, in all my days of writing about the Olympics, I've never seen so much mainstream interest in the critiques around the Olympics as we're seeing right now in 2021. Well, as we speak, more than 80% of the population in Japan does not want to stage the Olympics this summer. Less than 4% of the population is vaccinated, and I think that accounts for a fair amount of the disgruntlement around the games. You've got medical, uh, you, you've got medical professionals and medical officials clamoring for the Olympics to be canceled, posting on the outside of hospitals large placards saying things like "Stop the Olympics." You've got the anti-Olympics movement within Japan continuing weekly protests every Friday and seeing ever larger numbers, plus additional protests around the country during the week. I mean, things have just picked up in Tokyo. General disgruntlement around the Olympics is so high. I mean, we have never seen anything like this. This is unparalleled in the political history of the Olympic Games, the kind of disenchantment that we're seeing on the ground in Tokyo right now. It's just remarkable. And it's very sensible, I might add. I mean, if we just slow down and think about it, bringing in 11,000 athletes, another 80,000 or so people that are judges, uh, trainers, and so on, into a country, they're not required to be vaccinated. They're not required to engage in any kind of vigorous quarantine or tracing their whereabouts and what they've been doing. And we're already seeing troubles. There was the Kenyan soccer team that took tests before they left, and they were all negative. They arrived in Japan, and one of the players was positive for coronavirus. A lot of people tell me, oh, well, they did this with the NBA, and they created this bubble, or the WNBA, where they created the wobble. But, I mean, this would have to be El Bubble Grande to pull this off. We're talking about 11,000 athletes here. This is a huge number of people, and as I say, none of whom are supposed to be, are, are required to be. I should maybe step back. We're talking about... 11,000 athletes here, none of whom are required to be vaccinated. 
And this is an epic challenge. And there is almost assuredly going to be cases that slip through the cracks here. And that's why you're seeing this upsurge in dissent against the Olympics across Japan, not just in Tokyo, but across Japan. Be a good sport, be a good sport, I'll be a 
One other thing that's really contributed to the feelings of disgruntlement in the country is the absolute arrogance of the International Olympic Committee. I mean, you have the president of the International Olympic Committee, Tomas Bach, talking about how people in Japan are uniquely situated to overcome this kind of thing, intimating that it could be because of all they overcame because of World War II. That was received so poorly in Japan, understandably so, to have that coming from the outside. Then you've got John Coates, who is overseeing the Tokyo Coordination Commission. And he says that even if Japan is in a state of emergency, that they'll be able to pull off the Olympic Games. What arrogance. Then you have Richard Pound, who says that, quote unquote, barring an Armageddon, the Olympics will take place. Well, how could you not be living in Japan, hearing these guys, they're all guys, of course, from the outside, white men, telling you that you're going to have the Olympics whether you like it or not. Does it's going to take an Armageddon or more? It's going to take, uh, it's going to take major, uh, beyond state of emergency, whatever that is, and you're uniquely situated to do it because of the fact that you had nuclear bombs dropped on you? Like, how could you not be upset about this moment? And I think that's a big contributor to what we're seeing. And it's really opened up the field in terms of opening up a lot of people's eyes to the way the International Olympic Committee rolls. This group has long been a privileged sliver of the global 1%. This group has long been a profit-gobbling cartel. And now we get a frontal look at what the International Olympic Committee actually is, both historically and in our present moment. This group has long been a profit-gobbling cartel. And now we get a frontal look at what the International Olympic Committee actually is, both historically and in our present moment. That really came out. There's just a huge chasm between what's actually happening with the Olympics and their lofty rhetoric, which is admirable rhetoric. I mean, you can't read the Olympic Charter and not think there's some good ideas in that thing. The problem is those ideals aren't reached in the Olympic city. And in fact, sometimes you get the very opposite. So 
Yeah, I mean, if you look at the composition of the International Olympic Committee, uh, you can see that even today, more than 10% of the body is royalty of one form or another. Back in the day when Baron Pierre de Coubertin started the Olympics, he got together 15 counts and dukes and barons like himself. Women were not allowed to be part of the team. They were first allowed into the International Olympic Committee in 1981. And so you now have some princesses and that kind of thing. But I mean, this is a very insular group of people by and large. Some of these International Olympic Committee members, some of these International Olympic Committee members were actually athletes in the Olympics, like say in equestrian and swimming and other sports. But, but by and large, you know, they come from extraordinary privilege. And that really comes through in a lot of ways. Like between 1980 and 2001, there was an unrepentant fascist, Franco supporter, who was running the Olympics. His name was Juan Antonio Samaranch. Now, his son, Juan Antonio Samaranch Jr., is one of the biggest liaisons between China and the International Olympic Committee. Senior, Samaranch Sr., was the guy who really brought the Olympics to Beijing. He's extraordinarily popular inside of China, and his son is carrying on that tradition. But when you have an unrepentant fascist supporter running an organization like the International Olympic Committee, not just a member, but actually running the organization for 20 plus years, in a lot of ways that kind of says almost all you need to know about the organization. If the Tokyo Olympics are canceled, it very much depends on who canceled them. According to the host city agreement, the International Olympic Committee is the only entity that actually has the power to cancel the games. So if they cancel, then all these private insurance policies kick in with the International Olympic Committee, the broadcasters and whatnot, and they will claw back some of the money. They won't make the monster profits that they typically do. Um, to put a number on that, the Rio Olympics made NBC, just one of the broadcasters, around 250 million in profits. That's a pretty tidy profit there. So they won't get that, but they also won't have the monster losses that you might think if the games were canceled. I would say if for some wild reason that organizers in Tokyo or the government in Japan canceled the Olympics, then you're looking at a very different scenario. You're looking at a huge litigation nation moment. Japan will turn into litigation nation. They will be sued by the International Olympic Committee. It will be a whole world of litigation hurt for them. Those seem to be the two main ways that they could be canceled. The only other possibility would be if athletes were to do what they did in March 2020 and decide that they don't think it's right to attend the Olympics during a pandemic. But because of the fact that the International Olympic Committee took further postponement off of the table, I think it very much reduces that possibility. And I don't see that happening. I've talked to a lot of athletes, uh, I've talked to a lot of politically minded athletes, and um, they haven't told me anything about that possibility. And I would just say, I uh, have the good fortune of working with numerous Olympians behind the scenes who reach out to me. Maybe they've read something that I've written or seen me you know, commenting on the television or something, and including a number of Tokyo-bound Olympians. And one of those Tokyo-bound Olympians shared with me this document that they were being asked to sign in order to participate in the Olympics. And I found that document absolutely bracing in the sense that it explicitly said in the document that if this individual were to contract COVID-19 or die from the heat in Japan, which is also a serious issue, 
that they would not be able to sue the responsible parties, the International Olympic Committee or the Tokyo organizers. So basically it's a huge waiver that makes sure that the International Olympic Committee will not be held responsible. If an athlete dies, now I've signed my fair share of these waivers as an athlete. I have a whole you know, stack of ones that I, I could probably find that were from when I played you know, serious soccer. But it was just intense for me to then read that actually they were covering their, themselves so much, the organizers of the Olympics, that they were even going to list specific causes of death to make sure that that was definitely covered and that athletes fully realized the risks that were be put, being put on their shoulders and their shoulders only. I mean, let's not forget at the same time, organizers in Tokyo and the International Olympic Committee are calling these games the safe and secure games. They're saying, hey, we got this. We have a bunch of protocols that are going to be in place, and you're going to be perfectly safe at the exact same time that they're saying, oh, but sign this waiver in case you die and our protocols aren't safe. And at the same time that the New England Journal of Medicine is publishing an article that is lambasting the IOC for these jokish playbooks, they call them, that are guidelines for how to participate at the Olympics, which are basically things that everybody knows, like don't stand too close to somebody else, don't touch somebody else, uh, those kind of things. You know, wash your hands a lot, use hand sanitizer whenever possible. Like this is, this is the playbook, and this is what gives the International Olympic Committee all this confidence. But they're not that confident because they're still having these athletes sign these waivers saying that if they die, the IOC and Tokyo organizers are not responsible. That should be bracing. I know I found it breathtaking, really, and I've seen a lot over the years in terms of these waivers. So the International Olympic Committee has developed a number of what they call playbooks. These playbooks are designed for specific groups of people who will be participating in the Tokyo Games should they transpire. You've got volunteers, a playbook for volunteers, a playbook for journalists, a playbook for athletes, and so on. And when you read these playbooks, you realize that there's really not that much there there. Fairly basic straightforward information about what to do. Wash your hands, use hand sanitizer, socially distance, and so on. And this has really raised alarm bells in Japan. They issued one round of these playbooks a little while ago, then a second round, and now they say they're going to issue a third round in June. Though that third round is supposedly the last round of playbooks, so that'll be the most important ones. And because of the fact that the International Olympic Committee has gotten so much pushback from health officials about how these playbooks are essentially useless, you can bet that there'll be changes to this last one. Let me just give one example of what's wrong with the playbook. It's like obviously wrong with the playbook. So as it stands right now, athletes that travel to Tokyo to participate in the Olympics are going to have a roommate. And anybody will tell you that if you want to limit the amount of coronavirus transmission, that you should not have roommates. So the New England Journal of Medicine said, don't have groups of two staying in a room, just a group of one. People should be flying solo in their rooms. I mean, that seems so elementary as to like not even need to be said, and yet it needs to be said. So the playbooks, while designed to inspire confidence, have done the very opposite in a lot of ways and actually raised alarm bells for a lot of people inside of Japan. The vaccination rate in Japan is surprisingly low. As it stands right now, it's less than 4% of the population is fully vaccinated. And yet, there are athletes who will participate in the Olympics who will get to jump to the front of the line. 
and that has made a lot of people upset. But it's not just athletes. When the Australian softball team arrived in Tokyo to practice and get ready for the Olympics, this is what all the teams do. They arrive early, they set up camp in a different part of the country, and they started doing that. And the people that were helping the softball team, they got vaccines, they hopped the line. And those vaccines that those workers that are working with the Australian softball team, those vaccines that they got were actually meant for the elderly in the community. And so this made big news in Japan, as you might expect, that they're taking vaccines out of the hands of the elderly to give them to workers that are working with Olympic athletes. So in other words, if we didn't have Olympic athletes in the equation, we'd be doing the medically sensible thing, which is getting your oldest people in your community vaccinated, who are most susceptible to really getting hurt and hit by it, and kind of working your way down. Instead, we're looking at a situation where there's no way that the entire population in Japan will get vaccinated before the Olympics. There is no way that that's going to happen, and no one would say that it's possible. And yet they're going to host the Olympics with some 90,000 people coming from around the world, none of whom are required to be vaccinated, none of whom are required to none of whom are required to engage in rigorous quarantining. And so you can see why the people in Japan are incredibly jittery about hosting the Olympics. And not just jittery, but just flat out mad, many of them, that you're scooping the vaccines right out of the hands of the elderly and handing them to those who are much less susceptible to serious harm.
You're listening, You're to, listening Olympia. to Olympia on Net Net, on Net, Radio. Net Radio. If the Tokyo Olympics are not canceled, we're looking at the potential of a super spreader event in the name of an optional sporting spectacle. In other words, you're turning Japan into a giant Petri dish that could be exactly uh, the thing to spread the virus, not just across Japan, but then across the world. I mean, if you listen to medical officials right now, they're talking about the possibility of the real legacy of the Tokyo Games being something that they're calling the Tokyo Olympics variant of the coronavirus. Now, is that a for sure thing that's going to happen? Of course not, we don't know for sure. But if medical officials are seriously concerned that it's a distinct possibility, it seems to me it's worth taking them seriously and pausing and thinking again about whether to host these Olympics under pandemic conditions. If the Tokyo Olympics are canceled, then it'll show that anything's possible. And it'll really open up the, the realm of possibilities for possible cancellation of LA down the road. You just don't know what's gonna happen in this whipsaw world of ours. And um, in terms of direct ramifications, I don't see it. I don't, unless they do something really wild where they just like push everyone back four years, but that's not gonna happen. They're gonna basically just cancel if they're gonna cancel. But there are a lot of ramifications for Los Angeles in terms of how this has played out in Tokyo. For starters, the fact that the IOC holds the keys to the car and they're not handing them over to the organizers in Japan. They're not handing them over to the government in Japan. The International Olympic Committee is in charge and there's a reason why people have taken to television in Japan and said openly, that the IOC is a colonizing force in the country. And there's a reason why people in Japan feel like their sovereignty is being encroached upon by the International Olympic Committee. For me, those are huge lessons to learn for people in Los Angeles or Paris or elsewhere who have the Olympics coming down the road, at least in theory, to their cities. I mean, this should be eye-opening for people when they look at how things have rolled out in Japan in terms of who has the power and how they wield the power and how much they really care about the local desires. I mean, 80% of the population in Tokyo plus do not want the Olympics to happen. More than 80%. And yet, does the IOC care? Absolutely not. They have profits to make. They have 73% of their money rolling into their coffers from broadcaster revenues. Another 18% coming in from corporate sponsors. When nine out of every $10 comes from these two sources, that means that you're perfectly happy to have a made-for-TV event that the local population doesn't even want so long as the money continues to flow into your bank account. So I think if I was in LA, if I was in Paris, if I was in Milan, Cortino d'Ampezzo, I'd be taking real notice of the way that things have unfolded in Tokyo. And I'd be thinking hard about what's coming down the road. Well, for a long while, the International Olympic Committee has been able to ignore its critics and just proceed, hope they can get to games time, and then the athletes basically take over from there, and the shift happens in the way the media cover it, 
and they move away from the critiques and toward the athletic brilliance. That's usually the recipe that they can bank on. But I think there's something very different happening right now. And Tokyo 2020 has really stripped the varnish off the Olympic project in a way I've never seen before, where it's going to be hard to continue forward with the way they always do business. And maybe there's something to people attacking me and others on Twitter. To be honest, I, need, I don't pay that much attention to Twitter, for better or worse, and so I think I probably miss quite a bit of it too. But I've seen a few things, you know, where they're going after me personally and not so much my ideas, but me personally. And I just take that as a sign that we're winning. I mean, ad hominem attacks are the last refuge of those who've run out of arguments. And so in a way, I'll take that as a signal that we just got to keep on piling up the facts, being loud about it, standing up for justice, and getting some flack in the process is a, is a minor price to pay and one that I'm absolutely happy to pay. I think in terms of uh, the, the recipe has, has changed. And before, when they could just rely on the athletes, now they're the athletes who are speaking out. And let's talk about why the athletes are speaking out. There was a really important study done by Ryerson University in Canada that compared the amount of revenue that Olympic athletes got compared to athletes from other major sports like the National Basketball Association, the National Football League, the National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, and the English Premier League of Soccer, Football in England. And they found that with those other leagues, the players were getting 45 to 60% of the revenues directly into their pockets, 45 to 60%. Olympic athletes, they were getting 4.1% of the revenues. So when I say the IOC is a profit-gobbling cartel, I'm not being polemical. I'm being precise in terms of what's actually happening. I'm describing the scene. They are gobbling up the profits from the Olympics, and the athletes aren't getting it. And what you're seeing is a lot of athletes are starting to say, we need to organize. And there's a lot of upheaval within athletic circles among Olympians who realize that moving forward, unionization has to be on the table. It's no coincidence that those other leagues are getting 45 to 60% of the revenues. It's because they have a union that backs them to the hilt every single time. And so for me, that's one of the more exciting developments. And I feel like it really fits in here with what's happening in Tokyo because as the varnish gets stripped off of the Olympic project, athletes are more able to see what the Olympics are about in a lot of ways. Whereas before they might have kind of been under the spell that it was about sports and sports only, it's really hard to look at the Olympics now and see them only as a sporting event. I mean, some people will even go as far as to say it's just an economic juggernaut with a few sports appended onto the edges here and there. And even athletes are waking up to the reality that the International Olympic Committee has been scooping up the profits, placing all the risk on their backs, all the hard work on their backs. And the IOC just rolls in, calls themselves essential workers, and take those $900 per diems if you're on the executive board of the International Olympic Committee and head on their way. So for me, Tokyo also, I think, illuminates so many of the problems that athletes are becoming more and more aware of. And that's really important, too, for the long-term fight against the Olympics because the more athletes see themselves as athlete workers and the more athletes see themselves as in opposition to, in many ways, the interests of the International Olympic Committee, 
the more the chances that maybe even the Olympics will get exploded and will get something much more equitable for athletes that is not reliant on corporate sponsors, that is not reliant on corporate broadcasters. But if you don't have the athletes on board, it's going to be very difficult to create that kind of scene. I mean, I'm lucky too. Like, look at you know the rise of DSA, you know, anti-capitalism, or generally, all of a sudden, there's a willingness to think about this that there hasn't been. So, I mean, that's what. So, like, the last thing about that though is like, I mean, people are so willing to abide by the cliche that follow the money is a good idea, but they then aren't willing to sort of talk about capitalism, and I feel that's shifting in ways that are really useful. Like, yeah, let's follow the money. Absolutely. And let's put it within a frame of how capitalists capitalize off these moments of celebration in the case of the Olympics or disaster in the case of what Naomi Klein writes about with disaster capitalism.
You're listening to Olympia 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 on Net 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 Radio. We go now live to a taping from May 12, 2021. The surname Brian, uh, David O'Brien. Sorry, David O'Brien. Your question, please. Ah, no Olympics anywhere. No Olympics anywhere. Fuck the Olympics. We don't want the Olympics anywhere. You just turn him off. That'll no be Olympics used to someone LA. obviously who's not. No. no Olympics in Tokyo. Thank you. We go now live to a taping from September thirteenth, twenty twenty. Let's go to Ryan O'Malley. I know you've been waiting a long time. Ryan from Sports Business Daily. Ryan. Hi, Mr. Bach. Hi. How are you doing? Following on the... Hi there. Following on the earlier question about athlete demands to speak out and protest for Black Lives, um, Black Lives Matter in LA is expressly opposed to the 2028 Olympics. How do you respond to theirs and other critiques that the Los Angeles Olympics and indeed all Olympics increase policing and surveillance and put marginalized groups in further danger? Thank you. The uh, the Olympic Games, uh, by uh, uniting uh, the athletes uh, from 206 uh, National Olympic Committees plus the IOC Refugee Olympic Team, uh, are uh, maybe one of the most powerful demonstrations against uh, against uh, discrimination uh, uh, there uh, in in this uh, uh, world. And uh, furthermore, you know, uh, uh, in uh, uh, the uh, Olympic world, uh, uh, we are going uh, even uh, beyond uh, non-discrimination. Uh, uh, because uh, uh, for us, uh, it's it's about uh, uh, not only not discriminating or uh, uh, tolerating uh, uh, diversity, uh, uh, for us uh, it's uh, addressing uh, uh, these uh, issues and, and trying to, to remedy uh, the, these uh, issues uh, by uh, uh, having uh, solidarity among uh, all the diverse uh, group of athletes, uh, nations, uh, national Olympic uh, 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 committees. And uh, this is uh, what uh, makes uh, the, the Olympic Games uh, uh, so uh, so special. And, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, uh, what uh, uh, has been uh, expressed and uh, appreciated uh, also uh, by many uh, who are, uh, have been uh, fighting and are fighting there uh, for uh, uh, equality, uh, in particular in, in, in the US, uh, just uh, uh, to uh, mention uh, maybe one of the most uh, prominent ones, uh, Muhammad Ali.
Come on.